Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. It is Moscow Mitch Monday. Uh, we are your Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee. Thank you so much for joining our live stream tonight. We have got uh, really a phenomenal, phenomenal evening for you. We've got uh, a collaboration tonight with the Bluegrass Activist Alliance. So uh, Julie Martinez is going to be a co-host with us, which is super exciting. Uh, we've got our Mitch in the News segment uh, with some fun uh, fun news items where Mitch has been uh, really showing his clear contempt for our Commonwealth and general humanity. Uh, we've got uh, Kit back with a fiery essay looking at uh, one of our civil rights icons. We've got two interviews for you tonight. Two interviews. First time we've done that. So Dan Wu with Atomic Ramen of Atomic Ramen fame uh, and local activists and engagement. Uh, we got Celis Wilder, uh, who is a you know progressive politician. A lot of folks have heard of uh, talking about just the progressive landscape here in uh, in Kentucky and where it goes from uh, from from here. Uh, and then I did want to make a quick note. So we have to say goodbye to Denise Gray, who has been a wonderful co-host with us uh, throughout the past few months. Uh, she has gotten the uh, official job with the Amy McGrath campaign, and so she can no longer work with our independent effort uh, because she's, you know, she's official. Uh, and we uh, are really excited to have uh, her there, though, because I know that she's bringing a lot of energy and enthusiasm and great ideas to help help get that campaign uh, more uh, more. I don't know, what do, what do we say tactfully? Uh, <laughs> uh, put some more energy get into get it. Get them on the right track. <laughs> get them on the right track. Exactly. Thank you, Nate. Uh, always way more, uh, you know, well-spoken than I and kinder than I. Uh, so uh, I did one of those start off with some introductions. Uh, so uh, who are you? Where are you? What's your Moscow Mitch Monday sign today? say today? Uh, and again, I'm Aaron Viles. I'm coming to you from uh, Lexington, specifically the Childsburg neighborhood uh, in Lexington. Uh, and I, uh, my sign has got a little bit of a backstory. So it has been 24 days since the story broke that the White House failed to react to a Russian bounty on U.S. Trump's troops in Afghanistan. Uh, in those 24 days since that story broke, Mitch has yet to condemn the program or call for accountability from the White House. So. My sign says today, our vets deserve better than three weeks of silence. Hashtag Moscow Mitch, hashtag Russian bounty. And I'm pretty sure I could fit that all in a sign, right? Uh, so that's, that's what my, my sign says. Uh, Nate, how about you? Hey, folks, it's Nate Orshan uh, broadcasting from uh, South Frankfurt here in lovely Franklin County. And uh, tonight, my I would need a very big sign, very, very big, because it would say, hey, Mitch. The American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. And uh, I'll get into that a little bit more when I talk about the news. Big sign. Yeah, you need a lot of landscape for that, that sign, uh, but an important one. Uh, all right, Julie. Hi, uh, Julie Martinez here um, with Bluegrass Activist Alliance. Um, I am here in Lexington. I live on the south side of Lexington. Um, and I'm ex really excited to be here with you all today. Um, I think that my sign, I would go simple today with just a sit down Mitch. Um, you know, I looked up the dates today and I realized Mitch McConnell has been a senator in this state since I was 10 years old. Now, I would like to say that that was like 10 years ago, but that's not true. That was not 10 years ago because um, I'm 45. So, um, you know, it's it's time. He needs to sit down. He needs to give somebody else a chance. And Kentucky needs somebody who actually represents Kentucky and not their own wallet. Nice. That's great. So, hey, Julie, you are, you're new to the show, first time appearance here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about your kind of, what's your activist 
origin story? I don't know. Uh, what's your superpower? Uh, what, uh, and tell us a little bit about the Bluegrass Activist Alliance if folks don't know who, who y'all are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love it. That's the first time I've ever been accused of having an origin story. I love that. Um, I'll go with that. Um, so Bluegrass Activist Alliance is a grassroots group we started about four years ago after the 2016 election. Um, we went through a couple different name changes and merges of, of smaller groups um, as we have gone along the way. Um, we are one of the local indivisible groups um, here in Kentucky, and then we have been active at the local, in the city, regional, um, district, state level, and national level, um, trying to just get in, people engaged, get them involved in politics at all levels. Um, we started off primarily doing uh, protests and marches and that kind of thing because, you know, in 2016 and 2017, um, I don't know about you all, but um, I was angry. I'm still angry um, about the state of the world and um, just wanted to make a difference. Um, primarily, I'm a mom. I have teenagers and I don't feel like the world is... Um, the way it ought to be for my kids and it's not the way I want to leave it for them. So that's a lot of my mo my motivation for the things that I do is thinking about um, what kind of message do I want to tell my kids? Um, what kind of things do I want them to see me living out, which is actually more important than what I say to them, right? Because our kids, they, they see what we act on. Um, and my kids um, know that I go to protest. They go to protest with me. They know that we need to be active in, in interacting in politics. Um, sometimes they think I overdo it, of course, because I'm the mom, so I'm not cool. <laughs> but ultimately, um, that's, what, that's what we're here to is, is, is to make a better world for, for ourselves and for our children and for, for those who, who don't have a voice. Um, and that's what's the most important to me. That's so great. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining. And we're excited to collaborate with Bluegrass Activist Alliance uh, tonight. And then, you know, moving forward, obviously, we're all on the same team uh, uh, with an eye towards November 3rd and what we can do to ditch uh, Moscow Mitch. Uh, all right. So Mitch in the news, we're now going to get, uh, get some great stories about Mitch and what, uh, you know, how he looms over the media landscape. Uh, and the first story uh, comes to us from Nate. Yes, well, I actually read about it in the Los Angeles Times, but uh, close enough. So this weekend, we got the bad news um, that Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, uh, quote, undergoing chemotherapy for a recurrence of cancer, this time on her liver, unquote. Well, uh, given that so far she has survived uh, three different types of cancers and treatments, um, you know, this is really bad news. Uh, although you could say that, you know, she's licked them all, so why, why should this time be any different? But, you know, for, for a uh, person in their late 80s, it's, um, it's not the best thing in the world, especially if where this uh, broadcast is concerned, given that Mitch McConnell is now on record as saying that he would consider a nomination from the Trump administration for a replacement. Uh, and of course, if we rewind the tape back uh, four years ago when Justin and Antonin Scalia passed away unexpectedly, uh, Mitch did the opposite of that, right? He refused to hold Senate confirmation hearings for uh, the Obama administration's nominee, Merrick Garland, right? And what did he say back then? He said, quote, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice, unquote. Now you see where I wanted that on my sign tonight. Uh, that's what he said, uh, I think, the day after Antonin Scalia died. So, like, he was ready. He was going to deny Obama that, that last uh, nomination. Uh, therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. Well, 
you know, Kentucky voters know what's fair. And I think this kind of uh, naked hypocrisy from our senior citizen senator is the kind of unfair that we're just not going to bear. Uh, Justice Bader Ginsburg is in our hearts and prayers, but if she has to step down, it'll be time for Mitch McConnell to do the right thing and wait until the voters have spoken in November. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and, you know, prayers, uh, prayers and bubble wrap to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Obviously, we want to make sure that she is, you know, safe and healthy moving forward. She's very vulnerable, you know, the, the age group and, you know, battling different health diseases, uh, health issues. You know, she she puts her squarely in the coronavirus uh, risk group, uh, very much so, you know, and also now she's had to go to a hospital, which you can't, you know, if you want to stay healthy, stay out of hospitals, right? Uh, I, I think it's, it's, if you think about Antonin Scalia, he died in February, uh, I believe is when he died. So the idea that, you know, we don't have some like case to be made uh, if something tragic happens right now is, is outrageous, right? So we should be able to hold Mitch to the same standard. Of course, Mitch doesn't have a standard. His standard is how do I, you know, make the most of this situation to uh, advance my power? You know, that's his, that's his standard, right? So it's going to be tough to try to eke out anything uh, from that man. But look, let's hope this is just a theoretical exercise because, uh, you know, prayers for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So I think we got our next story uh, is uh, coming to us from Julie. Well, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, my kids are, are an important part of why I'm an activist. Um, I was taken aback by uh, Mitch's quote this week, or I guess the end of last week, um, as he started talking about schools. Um, first of all, I should start with saying, you know, I don't ever believe Mitch when he starts talking because he's not ever looking out for our best interests, right, as Kentuckians. Um, it, it, it's the political pawn game. And, and I hate the idea of our children um, in schools being a, a pawn um, in, in the politics game. Um, but you know, what he said was, I, I, well, I fear, I think they fear more children being stuck at home. And this is his thought on what parents are thinking about stu students going back and parents wanting students to go back. Now, let me tell you, I have been quarantined with two teenagers since March. Um, I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. Um, I know a little bit about um, what it's like to be stuck at home <laughs> right now with kids. Um, but you know what? The last thing that I have any desire to do is send my kids into any kind of circumstance that's not going to be safe for them. And secondary only to my children is my concern about my friends who are teachers and the fact that I don't want to send them into a situation where they're not safe either. What we're doing with schooling should be the last issue that has anything to do with politics. It should be a bipartisan concern, right? Where are our kids? Where are they safe? Where are our teachers safe? Are our schools safe for the people in them? Um, and this is just to me one more example of how Mitch McConnell takes something that should be about the well-being of Kentuckians and he turns it into this political game that he likes to play where he wants to come across because we're now in an election zone right of I'm gonna play the game of like oh yeah wear your masks and kids need to be back in school because he thinks that's what people want to hear um that's not what being a leader is being a leader is making hard decisions understanding what needs to be done listening to the people that you're you're supposedly representing um and to me, this is one more example of, of failed leadership um, where we're going to take our kids and we're going to make them into into political pawns. It's it's not acceptable. Yeah, that's a 
the teacher element, I think is really important, right? You know, like, uh, you know, because people have the sense like, oh, kids are immune or kids never get sick or, you know, they, 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 you know, they aren't spreading it or, you know, which I don't, I don't know what the information that's out there is not good. Uh, the situation is worse, though, that you would put them back in harm's way, uh, especially with teachers who could, you know, who'd very much be in harm's way. And, you know, the question isn't like, send them back to school or not. The question is, rush them back into school unsafely or give schools the resources, uh, the information uh, and the expertise they need to design uh, a way to come back safely. You know, that's 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 the question. Right. Uh, so if, if we you can know, start by funding schools to begin with. Right. So we already are dealing in a situation where schools are underfunded dramatically and have been for decades. Right. We've been cutting and cutting and cutting. Now you come to a crisis moment. You can't support that crisis moment when you are already in a crisis because of a lack of funding, because we don't prioritize education and we don't prioritize our children, even though we want to talk about them like we do. Yeah. Uh, but don't worry about it. Betsy DeVos has definitely got, you know, our kids' best interest at heart, for sure. For sure. <laughs> no one can question that, right? Uh, all right. So my story, or really quickly, uh, we've got, um, so Mitch is on his tour, or, uh, you know, he's been around the state, uh, reminding every county that he knows where they are, uh, and that, you know, he, it's not, sure, you haven't seen him for six years, but now he's back, he's bringing you a check or he's reminding you about, you know, the check that he got for you, right? So now it's him touring the state talking about my CARES Act, quote. So, and he's, he's showing up at hospitals, you know, pointing out how the resources they've gotten to help battle COVID and, you know, remain afloat uh, due to the kind of coronavirus response, which was very hard on hospitals. Uh, you know, he's, he's showing up at like food banks to talk about, you know, all the great work he's done to help provide assistance for people, right? The way he's not showing up at big corporate headquarters to talk about how he gave them like no strings att attached uh, money. That would be the only legitimate thing that he, sh he should show up the Shake Shack, you know, corporate headquarters uh, and say, hey, sorry, you guys got caught and had to give the money back, but I really wanted you to have it, right? And, you know, that's, that's what Mitch did. Mitch showed up and said, we're going to jam through a bunch of money, a trillion dollar slush fund for corporations. We're not going to have any accountability. We're not going to let, you know, you know, Democrats in the House see where the money went and what people did with it. Uh, and, you know, the Democrats in the House said, uh, no, <laughs> no, you need to actually give unemployment assistance to people. That's $600 a week piece, which is so critical for folks right now. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, you know, the money for hospitals, uh, the, you know, the PPP program, which was actually supposed to be geared towards small businesses. We'll hear about how that worked out for folks, you know, and, and of course, you know, what do we got? We got, you know, Mitch's in-laws, 350 million or so to Mitch's in-laws, uh, you know, for their amazingly large shipping company, which, you know, not quite a small business. Uh, and, you know, it, it, the idea that he's now claiming credit uh, at the same time saying, well, I don't think this unemployment insurance, the $600 a month a week thing, that should not continue. He's saying that point blank, that that should not continue. He's saying, well, we'll figure out something to help people that need it. But we should, we're definitely, it's a non-starter. We're not going to give the $600 a week moving forward. Of course, that ends July, what, 23rd-ish? Like, it, it's ending very soon. Uh, they don't have a plan for the next program. People are relying on that if they've been able to make it through Kentucky's, you know, horrible unemployment system, which 
we could go into detail on the unemployment system and why the, you know it's horrible. Uh, just to be clear, it's the Republicans' fault. Uh, we've done a little bit of digging on why it's so bad and why it is technologically not where it should be. And it is, in fact, Republicans' fault. But uh, more on that later. Uh, but I, I do want to just say, like, this idea that he's just going to walk away or say, well, you know what, we'll figure out something. Uh, they don't have a lot of time, right? <laughs> you know, everyone knows the date. It is July 20th. Uh, this thing runs out very soon. They're not, you know, they, they go back in session uh, and they're going to need to cut some deal. Uh, and we need to keep the pressure on them to make sure that that deal includes the $600 a week for the people who need it. Because if that does, you know, if that ends uh, our economy, actually, you think it's bad now, it will be horrible, you know. Uh, and, you know, people are going to be thrown out of their apartments. People are going to be, you know, struggling to find food. You know, there's a lot of food insecurity in, in Kentucky right now. There's an incredible, you know, unemployment, like what, a you know, million people, you know, half of uh, the state is, has had their, uh, their income affected by, uh, uh, by the coronavirus economic impact. Uh, so this is actually from an op-ed, uh, the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy had a great op-ed in the uh, Herald Leader, uh, uh, and it said, uh, state and lo local governments are facing massive revenue losses in the coming months that will lead to more layoffs with the state uh, facing potential cuts of 16 to 29 percent. Uh, that's in the state budget, a uh, huge amount. Uh, and with the uh, $600 in supplemental unemployment benefits ending on July 25th, with 50 percent of Kentuckians report having lost household employment income in the pandemic. So in less than two weeks, Kentuckians who are out of work will lose nearly two thirds of their unemployment checks on average. Uh, and, you know, we are, we're not doing great to begin with. So the idea that uh, that would happen uh, under Mitch McConnell's watch, that's his leadership. Uh, you know, if he does not uh, do something promptly to give a, a next program. Uh, and I think that uh, what he's been very clear about, though, his desire to make sure that corporations who uh, force workers back in unsafe situations uh, are legally protected. Right. That's his red line of what he needs out of his next uh, next, you know, coronavirus relief package. He doesn't care about the six hundred dollars a week. What he cares about is making sure that uh, the greedy trial lawyers aren't able to hold irresponsible corporations accountable. So we need to put the pressure on Mitch right now. And uh, that's that's the story that, I, that had me fired up today, clearly. So. Um, so that is Mitch in the news. I don't know. Unless folks, uh, Nate or uh, Julie, thoughts about that. Uh, that CARES Act, um, the HEROES Act that's coming up next? I think it's another real example of how um, Mitch McConnell likes to kind of trot out things um, when it's time for an election. Um, and, and he has a long history of this in Kentucky um, where he will say, oh, but look what I've done for Kentucky. Look, you know, at these great things that, that I've been able to do. But if you dig a little deeper, right, if you just go a little bit beneath the surface, um, it never really plays out quite like that. And so I'm not surprised at all. I was expecting that, you know, he would he would turn around and try to, to walk this out as, you know, something that he's doing for Kentuckians. But again, Erin, I think you did a great job of pointing out who really benefited the most from that. Um, and, and the average Kentuckian who desperately needs an employment um, are the people who are going to lose out ultimately because they're not on his list. They're not the important person um, that he's thinking about. He's not thinking about who in Kentucky doesn't have food tonight or this weekend and can't feed their kids. He's thinking about how do I get tax breaks for the wealthy? How do I protect the interests of those companies who, who ought to be sued for the way that they're acting? Um, 
it's it's par for the course, in my opinion, of of what we have seen for decades now. Yeah, absolutely, Nate. Nate, did you have any thoughts? You're muted. Uh, nothing else to add. <laughs> Reclaiming your time. <laughs> Thank you, good sir from Frankfurt. Uh, all right, so. Uh, this is now our, our call to action se section. Uh, we want to make sure that, you know, we're, this is the digital demonstration, folks, right? So we've seen our signs, uh, all very long, very large signs. Uh, now it's time for the, what's the, what are we, you know, what do we want, right? What do we want tonight uh, for Moscow Mitch Monday? And we're actually going to focus on one of Mitch's minions. Uh, so specifically, uh, we are targeting state level action today. Uh, there was an incredible opinion piece uh, in the Courier Journal. Uh, the headline uh, was, uh, who was it? Uh, Joe, Joe Girth, I think, wrote it. Uh, and whether or not Cameron uh, wants to be Kentucky's most uh, lethal serial killer. So Dan Cameron, uh, the attorney general, uh, is a Mitch minion, right? So he went to the University of, uh, of Louisville, went there for undergrad to law school, then became, uh, after law school, Mitch's you know, legal counsel uh, in his Senate office. Uh, for not very long, and then, you know, did some other stuff, but, you know, tried a, a case, perhaps, you know, like, not a very accomplished attorney, uh, but a very accomplished politico. Uh, he's definitely used his, uh, you know, his law school uh, expertise and, you know, connections to network very well, and is now very much uh, revered by Mitch McConnell as the next generation of Kentucky Republican leadership, uh, which, uh, you know, if you think that sounds like a good idea, you've not been paying attention, right? So uh, he has a long history of pushing back against uh, Governor Bashir's efforts to keep our uh, Commonwealth safe, right? So early on, when churches weren't allowed to gather in person, uh, you know, Cameron chose, first he got sued, and then he chose to actually, you know, join with those uh, bringing the lawsuit to sue the governor uh, about, you know, in-person gatherings, uh, and they said it was all about churches and uh, religious freedom. Uh, when, of course, you know the, the the actual directive was to keep you know small groups small uh, and not gather in uh, in large groups. Uh, so there was that, uh, you know. And then uh, most recently is Evans Orchard's camp uh, uh, lawsuit with uh, uh, the Ag Commissioner Ryan Quarles. Uh, they brought a lawsuit against the governor and Cameron is standing with them because you know. People weren't able to go to the, the the orchard in the number that the Evans folks wanted, uh, and now he brought did a little revenue uh, kind of venue shopping, and now there are efforts to strip the governor's all the governor's emergency actions. So you know masks in public, limiting occupancy inside certain businesses, allowing public K through 12 schools to have more than 10 days of non-traditional instruction for like remote learning. All of this stuff would go away if Cameron gets his uh, his way, right? So he's he's challenging all of the uh, the emergency actions that the governor has taken in the time of this pandemic. Uh, and uh, thankfully, at this point, the Supreme Court has said, whoa, 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 let's not do that. Like a judge in Boone County was ready to throw the whole thing out and, you know, kill people. Uh, because, you know, that's what happens when these, these protections go away is people, the infection rates go up. You know, and then after that, it's hospitalizations and then it's uh, actual deaths. So that's what happens. Uh, thankfully, the Supreme Court said that this is a bad idea. Let's hold off. But it's, it's not decided. Right. The case actually has not been argued and decided yet. So uh, at this point, Attorney uh, General Dan Cameron needs to hear from the public 
you know, I, I saw some polls like 73% of the public thinks the mask mandate is a good idea. Uh, he needs to hear from 73% of the public. They need, people need to step up and say, look, uh, you know, it's important to keep people safe. Uh, so there is a, you know, you can comment on his website. I think we're sharing it right now. Um, but you can contact him, uh, send him a message, let him know that uh, you support uh, the governor's efforts to keep uh, our Commonwealth safe uh, and that he should drop his challenge to those efforts uh, and work collaboratively instead of, uh, you know, combatively in the courts. So that's, uh, that's our call to action for tonight. I'm, I'm going to wait here until you do it. I'm not. All right, so um, you can you can do it later. That's fine. Uh, the link will be there after uh, after the show is over. But uh, what we're really excited to do is have our first interview of the night. Uh, we are uh, going to be joined uh, tonight by uh, Dan Wu. Uh, so uh, again, Dan is somebody who I you know, have eaten his food. Uh, so he uh, runs Atomic Ramen. Uh, some of the best, the best, I'm just saying the best ramen uh, in Lexington and uh, amazing food. And then of course, coronavirus hit uh, and, you know, Dan ended up in a situation where, you know, I think he just had more time on his hands, honestly. I don't know. So he's been very active. He's done a ton of stuff in the community. Uh, but I you know, read an opinion piece that he wrote uh, uh, that was really fantastic and talked about you know, the, the HEROES Act, which, you know, the kind of house version uh, of the coronavirus relief effort, the kind of next up for that. So that, uh, that kind of led me to reach out and say, hey, what are you doing? You should come and talk, uh, talk to us on our show. So he's here, which is fantastic. Uh, Dan Wu, welcome to uh, Moscow Mitch Monday. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. I have a lot of thoughts. You <laughs> had a lot of time to think. <laughs> uh, and as we start every interview, Dan, I want to ask you, what does your protest sign say today? Oh, I have so many things I want to say, but like today in particular, and the thing that I want to really drill it down on is the whole idea of the HEROES Act and extending that $600 extra unemployment. So it's hashtag save the 600. Simple as that. And, you know, I, this is the kind of time where, you know, Mitch is still in office and he's not gone. So we're going to all ask very firmly and very politely that this is something that needs to happen right now. I mean, the, the HEROES Act passed the House uh, over two months ago and it's been sitting on his desk rotting uh, while, you know, my employees are sitting there. I mean, the clock is ticking. The 25th is the last check uh, going out with that extra 600. Uh, that includes all my employees that I had to uh, furlough and lay off. And that includes myself as a small business owner. So I'm not sure what I'm doing in five days, much less the, the, the rest of my employees and the rest of America. Yeah. It, it, and it just sounds like, you know, the, the programs have been uh, problematic. Uh, you know, you, I, I imagine you were the folks of the uh, paycheck for Paycheck Protection Program was supposed to help. Uh, how did you find that uh, interacting with that that program? Um, it took me forever to figure out if I wanted to get the the PPP loan, just because it was so complicated and onerous, and there was no guidance from the SBA. And so it took me talking to every business owner I knew, a couple of financial consultants, and a couple of bankers to kind of cobble together. I mean, this is how bad things were. I remember, I think I had posted on Facebook maybe and said, hey, are there any PPP experts out there that can shed some light on this? And several people said, you are. 
And I was like, okay, we're in trouble now if I currently hold the most like comprehensive information about PPP in my social circle. But that's kind of how it was. I eventually got it. Uh, and then I sat on it and I have been sitting on it for months because I didn't have a good way to use it the way it was structured, the percentages, you had to hit a certain number of full-time equivalents or else it didn't count. So the last thing I wanted as a small business owner was to come out of this whole pandemic in debt. That's the last thing I need on my plate. Uh, so I sat on it, uh, figuring if I couldn't figure this out by the end of the year or whatever, I would just give it back. Um, thankfully, the, the PPPFA came through, which um, made a lot of really good and helpful changes. It changed the eight-week spending uh, term to 24 weeks, which for me personally extends to uh, the end of October. Uh, it changed the 75% payroll requirement to 60-40, which is also helpful. Right now, my fingers are crossed that um, there's been some chatter, uh, including from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who uh, is lobbying for all loans under $150,000 to be forgiven flat, no strings. Uh, that would be amazing, and that would uh, unshackle all of us small business owners to be able to just spend that money on what we're spending it on. None of us small business owners are going out and buying Audi, Audis with this money. You know what I mean? Like we're using this to pay our rent, to pay our utilities, to pay our taxes, to hire people back and try to stay in business. So uh, fingers crossed on that one. Yeah, that's great. And then there was a website that, uh, that you had shared. Tell us a little bit about that action. Yeah, so um, there's a fairly new organization called the uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition. It was started literally, I think, five, six months ago in response to the pandemic. Um, they are right now pushing through uh, the restaurant stimulus, a restaurant, uh, I'm forgetting the exact name of it now, but it's gotten sponsors. I'm not sure where in the process it is. What it is, is a specific restaurant and hospitality industry stimulus package um, because we, our industry is the backbone of the American uh, economy. We employ millions and millions of people. We include, you know, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of small business owners. Um, so it's a stimulus package that's supposed to help the restaurant industry um, get through it. And the website, I believe, is savetherestaurants.com or saverestaurants.com. Uh, There's a direct link in there where you can basically send uh, kind of a push to uh, to senator, I mean, to your senators, and in our case, it's you know, Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell to to get this push through because I think we all remember like months ago there were industry specific bailouts, including the airline industry. They were given a ton of money and then they laid off a ton of people, and they make up a fraction of what the hospitality industry um, employs. So if they get their own special money, we need it even more to get through it because once people are ready to go out and eat again, you're going to see a decimated landscape of restaurants and bars. Yeah. Yeah. Just tragic. Uh, well, uh, I am definitely keeping my fingers crossed for atomic ramen for sure. Cause it truly is the best ramen in Lexington. Uh, but yeah, uh, Julie, do you have a question for Dan? Yeah. Um, and thanks for sharing that insight. That's really interesting just to hear from your perspective um, I mean, I think all of us have our favorite small restaurants that we we hope are going to make through it. Yours being one of them, um, and I and I would love to see the leadership of our country really backing real business owners. 
Um, I wish that we would see that regularly. Um, I'm curious, you know, with with this time on your hands in the quarantine time, what are you, what have you been doing with yourself? Um, how are you using your time? Uh, I, I I like to joke that my self care is keeping busy. It's like the opposite of other people's self care. I'm really not good at downtime. Um, so I've been working on a couple of business models um, with some friends of just some sort of post COVID or perpetual COVID era businesses um, uh, related to food, but not very directly. Uh, we started a, a group recently called the People's Council, uh, which is a grassroots ground up um, uh, black, indigenous and people of color led uh, organization basically to try to pull resources and do good work in a, in a local setting. Uh, I think those of us on the left very often have a talking problem in that we will sit down and talk and talk and talk and talk and make sure everybody's heard and get all these ideas out there and nothing happens and I'm really, really sick of it. So we're creating a, a grassroots kind of ground up organization that basically is about impactfulness. Like if you have a project that will pay the electrical bill for two families and you need $600, we'll make that happen. And that's impactful and that's gonna help a couple of families. We're not gonna um, try to create pie in the sky situations that are just unattainable and talk about it for three years and have you know committee after subcommittee on it. We're just gonna try to do stuff. So that's what I've been working on. Um, on the business end, uh, we're hopefully going back to UK's campus this fall, fingers crossed. I have no idea how that's gonna work. It sounds nuts to me to serve food in a dining hall to hundreds of students a day. I don't know how that's gonna work, we'll see. Cool, and then. Uh, oh, and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, I started a Facebook Live show a few months ago called Let's Get Through This. I just did episode 31 today, uh, and I've had some really great guests from the community. Um, we started off basically talking about life during COVID. Uh, so I've had a rabbi on, I've had community uh, leaders on, business people, uh, chefs, um, you know, all kinds of people. And then recently I've kind of reshifted the focus towards uh, Black Lives Matter and all the protest movements and try to make it a real platform to um, highlight the voices of, uh, of people of color in particular. I'm real excited. My next two shows, I've got Latasha Buckner, who is the chief of staff for Governor Bashir, and I got Frank X. Walker, uh, former poet laureate of Kentucky. So it's like what we in the industry like to call big gets. Big gets. Those are exciting. Um, we'll have to check out your show. And and I loved what you were saying about um, focusing on action. I think that's so important. Um, we do, you know, liberals, we love us some talk. We really do. We love to talk so much. I'm, I'm one of those. I love to talk. Um, but, you know, that's if we're going to make real change, we have to act. Right. And sometimes we're afraid to act, I think, because we don't want to mess up. And I think um, we need to just act and accept the fact from the beginning that we're going to mess up. We're going to do something wrong in some manner, but in the end, isn't it still better that we did something and that we try and we learn from that and apologize when we screw up? Yeah, I, I live by two mantras. One is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, the other mantra is uh, ask for forgiveness instead of permission. And the great thing with that idea is half the time, 
you're under the radar so much that the powers that, that be don't notice you and you don't even have to ask for forgiveness. You just get away with it. Well, now we know to watch you on Facebook, though, and we're going to find out what you're up to, and we're going to keep an eye on you, and uh, we're going to hold you accountable. Uh, no, uh, I hadn't seen you on the Facebook, so you're around here, too. Uh, it's good to see uh, everyone's doing the Facebook Live, and sounds like Let's Get Through This is, uh, is a great resource for folks uh, who just want to find out what, what kind of great progressive activism ha is happening here in Lexington. So we'll definitely check it out and share it, share it with our, uh, with our audience, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely appreciate it. Uh, I would, I would spend another 20 minutes just chatting with you, but we've got a lot of people queued up behind us. So we've, we've got to move on. Uh, but yeah, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, I'll do just one quick thought. The, the one big argument that the Republicans have trotted out against, um, extending that $600 is that it would be a disincentive to, um, to, to, to people going back to work. What work? There's no work out there. There's not enough work out there between the very necessary state mandates uh, that are restricting, you know, for my industry, how many people can be in a restaurant. Uh, that's killing us. And put on top of that, consumer confidence and behavior has changed completely in the last three or four months to where people aren't going out to eat. So a restaurant like mine that normally had 12 employees I might reopen it with me and three people and then realize that we can't make any money and then two months later close again. That's what jobs looks like right now. So that argument is completely without any merit. So hopefully people will see that and hopefully we keep the pressure up and, uh, and get this money extended because the, the clock is ticking. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. All right. So we are, uh, wow, that was great. Super exciting. Uh, now we're going to bring up our, um, you know, our standing weekly segment. Uh, we've got Doug Price uh, with following Mitch's money, uh, which I think is going to be a great one because it's looking at uh, uh, something that uh, Congressman Yarmouth brought up uh, the other day, which was uh, the, the fact that uh, the background checks bill uh, has stalled out and it's sitting on uh, Mitch's desk. And I think that uh, asked, you know, Doug asked, well, why is that? Why is background checks sitting on uh, Mitch's, uh, Mitch's desk? Uh, and I think he's gonna answer that question for us right now. I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. I have my Porter Paints hat as I'm going to paint a picture about Mitch and money. Tonight I will connect the dots and weave a story about Mitch, money, intrigue, and the NRA. A couple years ago, I watched a TV series titled The Americans. The central characters were Russian citizens brought to America to spy on America. Fast forward to 2016. Is this fiction the truth? In 2018, Maria Butina, a 30-year-old gun rights enthusiast, was the first Russian citizen convicted of a conspiracy to act as an unregistered foreign agent of Russia within the United States. She was released in October 2019 and deported to her hometown in Siberia. I understand it's really cold there. She burst onto the scene when she connected with the NRA and starting to help the NRA connect with gun rights in Russia. She got involved with an American lobbyist, Paul Erickson, who is now in jail for other matters. From an article by Anna Masoglia, the NRA disclosed spending on foreign fundraising for the first time in the gun rights group's history. While the NRA disclosed spending on foreign fundraising makes up only a small slice of the operation's total outlay, 
The actual amount of money brought in by that fundraising is unknown. The NRA is not allowed to use foreign funds to influence elections, but as a 501c4 nonprofit, it can continue to spend millions of dollars on political activity without revealing its funders, how much foreign money it takes in, or what the money was spent on. Prior to reporting 92,000 on foreign program expenses and 24,000 spending on foreign fundraising in 2018, the NRA's previously disclosed overseas activities were limited to offshore investments in Central America and the Caribbean, along with occasional trainings or events in that region or in Europe. Do we want American-based organizations and American politicians receiving funds from foreign governments and or potential pass-throughs from foreign governments to politicians? Do we want foreign governments messing in our elections? I think the 2016 election and the aftermath holds the answer to this. Here are some NRA campaign contribution figures from Open Secrets, the Center for Responsive Politics. In the 2020 election cycle, NRA had contributed over 264,000 to Republicans and a measly 2,600 to Democrats. Of those funds, 206,000 went to the NRA Victory Fund, 30,000 each to the National Republican Congressional and Senatorial Committees, 16,000 to the Republican National Committee, and 10,000 to Mitch. Most people will remember Jim Brady, who was President Reagan's press secretary until he was wounded during an assassination attempt of Reagan. The Brady Organization continues work to pass universal, universal background checks. Here is a Mitch-related nugget from the webpage. The NRA has contributed 1267139 dollars to Mitch over his career. We heard from an earlier Moscow Mitch Monday contributor that a meeting with Mitch would cost at least 25000 I would guess that $1.2 million buys more than 25000 So what does Mitch think about guns? From a Washington Examiner op-ed by Charlie Spearing in 2014, does Mitch McConnell own a gun? Of course Mitch McConnell has shot a gun as a matter of principle. He's not interested in helping the left bully people into revealing what protection they may keep in their own homes. This was a uh, comment by a McConnell campaign spokesman. After the Marshall County, Kentucky school shooting, where two people were killed in 2018, Mitch said, I don't think at the federal level there's much that we can do other than appropriate funds. McConnell is not in favor of gun control laws. He just wants to throw money at the schools rather than addressing the real problem. He thinks school security is the most likely way that schools can stop shootings. You would think, given how much it takes to get on an American plane, or given how much it takes to get into courthouses, that this might be something we could achieve. But I think we can't do that from Washington. I think basically it's a local decision. He added, it's a darn shame that's where we are, but this epidemic is something that's got all of our attention. Does 1.2 million buy dedication to the NRA? Seems like there is another epidemic going on, and at least he finally stepped up and said masks are a good thing. But he continues to remain silent about the current administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. On our Moscow Mitch Monday presentation last week, we heard from Congressman John Yarmouth. 
He said that the House had approved a universal background check measure, but Mitch has not brought the bill forward along with almost an additional 400 others. Congressman Yarmouth believes that Mitch doesn't really care whether or not the bill would pass. He only cares about protecting senators who would have to face constituents if the bill is considered. Universal background checks on gun purchases. Um, you know, this is a this is an issue that has 90% support in the country. 75% of NRA members support that. Um, and Mitch, it's we passed it, and Mitch is just sitting on it. And quite frankly, I don't think Mitch cares about the issue one way or another. I've said repeatedly that the key to all this is people voting. Too many times, only 45% of the registered voters vote, which indicates that you only have to win 23% of the vote. This means that 77% of the registered voters did not vote to elect our leaders, our, our politicians. We need voter turnout in November. We need mail-in balloting in November. We must vote to retire Mitch on November 3rd, 2020. This partisan impeachment will end today. Uh, thank you so much, Doug. Doug Price, always doing the research, always, you know, digging in, doing the homework for us. Uh, we very much appreciate it. All, our, all the non-research inclined folks on the committee owe a debt of gratitude uh, to Doug Price. But uh, so uh, really excited this week to have Kit back with their uh, their. Uh, semi-regular uh, uh, bi-weekly what's that bi-weekly bi that's the word bi-weekly uh, not or bi-monthly I think it could be both it's bi-weekly it or bi-monthly but yeah so Kit uh, with Mitch never lets us down in letting us down Kit welcome back thank you so much we're looking forward to what you've uh, you know what's fired you up this week it is funny though, Aaron, something fires me up every single week, but you know, this week I'm fired up, but it's really somber for me um, with the news of, uh, you know, John Lewis's passing this past weekend. And so I just wanted to take a second and, and discuss that in my little mini essay, which is um, about John Lewis. So I'm just going to go right into it. No chatter because my heart's a little broken. Um, the Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee mourns the passing of Congressman John Lewis, a civil rights icon who fought on the front lines of the civil rights movement during the 1960s and later represented Georgia in Congress for 33 years. To quote house.gov, house which is actually one of my favorite sites, um, up there with GovTrack, John Lewis was, quote, often called one of the most courageous persons the civil rights movement ever produced. He dedicated his life to protecting human rights securing civil liberties, and building what he called the beloved community in America. His dedication to the highest ethical standards and moral principles won him the admiration of many of his colleagues on both sides of the aisle, something that I feel like we, we don't see nearly enough of, um, and some of my greatest heroes are actually able to do that uh, in the U.S. Congress. One of my personal favorites, 
Senator Patrick Leahy, who can work on both sides of the aisle, uh, with both sides of the aisle, said about John Lewis, he was a lodestar who drew us closer to our ideals. John Lewis was an American hero who taught us to stand up and to make what he called good trouble. As he said, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And we are seeing folks carrying on his torch across our, our nation today, right now, and we have been for the past month, getting into good and necessary trouble, standing up against the injustices of the police and of our current administration and beyond. In doing so, they honor John Lewis's memory. We must also honor his memory and demand that our senators do the same. One immediate area in which we can do that is voting rights. As Kristen Clark wrote in USA Today, Mr. Lewis spent his life fight, fighting for equal access to the vote, regardless of race, which he viewed as the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy, the vote. And we hear a lot about vote and we here at Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee do some work with um, voting with our friend uh, Sandy Downs. On December 6, 2019, Lewis held the gavel as the House of Representatives passed the Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would establish new criteria for determining how states with histories of voting discrimination could change their voting laws. He presided over the House vote to restore the Voting Rights Act 227 days ago, and he has now passed. Kentucky Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, my senator, my senior senator, has said that legislate has had that legislation sitting on his desk since then. I imagine it's in his legislative graveyard of which he is actually so proud. Mr. McConnell was one of the multitude from Washington hosting tributes for John Lewis this past weekend. In his statement, he actually said, our great nation's history has only bent toward justice because great men like John Lewis took it upon themselves to help bend it. Really? That's true. I can't believe that I'm saying it, but he's right. I actually agree with Mitch McConnell tonight for that. But I say this to Mr. McConnell, that is a lovely and absolutely meaningless tribute. If you, like us, want to honor John Lewis, then you will take it up and pass the Voting Rights Advancement Act. Kristen Clark says it perfectly. McConnell himself has a historic opportunity to bend our history toward justice by taking action now to restore a powerful law that has provided some of the most critical voting rights protections in modern times. Mr. McConnell, we're doing our job to honor the man you claim to honor. I urge you to do the same. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite and you know how I feel about that and I can spell it now. Rest in peace, Mr. Lewis. Thank you for causing good trouble. Thank you for the lessons you imparted. I hope we do you proud as we fight on. Love, Kit. Thanks so much, Kit. Uh, yeah, John Lewis, that's a loss. That's a loss to all of us. It's, you, you know, if you do progressive organizing, it's a loss to you, even if you never knew his story. But everyone should know his story because it is uh, it's in a phenomenal American story. Uh, I was fortunate enough that he actually uh, had a kind of standing date where every year he would come and brief uh, our canvas office in D.C. So I got to see him come and, you know, tell his story about preaching to the chickens uh, when he was a kid pr uh, practicing. Uh, and just an amazing, amazing human, you know, and to see all these Republicans line up and, you know, sing his praises on social media, you know, or Elijah Cummings, right? I think it was a couple of folks who got it wrong. Uh, 
and to block you know the legislation that he believed in uh that it's just it was it's astounding really to watch it all um anyway so uh thank you so much kid we're excited to, to have you back we'll see you in a couple of weeks uh but yeah we, we're now uh going to be joined by um our final interview for the night uh so um Celis wilder uh is uh is a progressive organizer political uh figure here in kentucky he served as a frankfurt city commission as a frankfurt city commissioner for two terms including one term as frankfurt's mayor uh pro tem uh his film the end of the line which follows the grassroots defeat of a multi-million dollar fracking pipeline in kentucky has been used as an organizing tool in other successful pipeline fights around Kentucky and across the eastern U.S. Uh, Sella served on the 2016 National Democratic Party Committee after running for the U.S. Senate that year. Uh, he helped draft and amend the most progressive party platform in history, and, which included a successful amendment opposing mountaintop removal mining. Sellis uh, now lives in Lexington and works to support grassroots voter engagement and leadership development efforts across Kentucky as director of the Commonwealth Alliance Voter Engagement. Uh, so, Sellis, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, and hey, what's your sign say? Hey, Aaron. Um, oh, you know, I, I suppose today it would have a, a picture of McConnell on it um, and say that the only way to take this Confederate statue down is to vote in November. Uh, Ditch Miss 2020. Nice. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get rid of that guy. Uh, so yeah, I was going to ask you uh, if you supported our uh, efforts to oppose Mitch McConnell, but it sounds like you do. So no, tell us, the, what's the landscape look like from, from your eyes, right? So you are somebody who's engaged with a lot of different efforts. Mm -hmm. You've been in, you know, in the political progressive part of Kentucky's politics for a while now. You know, what's your read on it? How are we doing? I mean, I think the on on the whole, the movement in Kentucky just showed a lot of strength in the primary. I know there was a lot of excitement around um, Booker's campaign and the you know the the surge uh, that he saw there, and of course a lot of the grassroots groups around Kentucky, at least those that weighed in on the primary, um, for the most part, almost entirely, um, you know, got in to endorse uh, you know this young black progressive state rep uh, from Louisville. Um, you know, I mean, there were a handful of uh, you know, some some uh, chapters around the state of some groups that um, supported Mike Breuer and, he, and even they did so on the basis of a progressive uh, policy platform. So, you know, I think we saw that that as as people see that, um, you know, these ideas are viable and that there really are champions willing to carry these torches that they will come out for that. And that was part of the um, I mean, you know, that was part of the premise when I ran in 2016, as much as anything, was just to demonstrate that to the KDP and to the party and to others that, um, you know, we need to stop um, uh, competing with Republicans as you can be the most conservative and just lean into our values and build up our base. Um, and since, uh, you know, over the last few years, um, you know, I've been working closely with a lot of uh, grassroots groups around the state and just seeing all of the energy and excitement around uh, the last few months, you know, I, I just, I feel like the progressive movement really flexed its muscles. Um, and I, uh, I have no, you know, and I, and I just, I, I believe we're going to continue to keep uh, building and getting stronger from here. It's excited to see that uh, Charles is staying in the fight with his hood to the holler effort. Um, uh, you know, and that's right in alignment with what a lot of, uh, you know, the groups I'm talking about have been doing in the state, this, this belief that um, we need more representation, uh, we need more voters that share our values, 
Um, we need to ensure that everybody has access to the ballot, regardless of where they stand on anything. Uh, we need a broad representative democracy in order to have broad representative democracy. Um, and then we need to focus our leadership development efforts on traditionally uh, disenfranchised, underrepresented uh, communities and spaces, which in, in Kentucky are um, not uncommon. Um, and so uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're building power. I, I, uh, uh, and, and I do believe that it is possible to beat uh, McConnell in, um, in November, just given the climate that we're in. But uh, uh, that's going to take a lot of engagement and a lot of folks working and a lot of boots on the ground and a lot of um, phone calls and text messages and digital engagement, and lit drops, and coordination. Um, yeah. Sounds like we've got a lot of work ahead of us, really, is what it sounds like. Yeah, I hope folks are up for it. Uh, yeah. Uh, Julie, you have a question for Salas? Yeah. Uh, Salas, I loved what you were talking about, um, you know, about Charles Booker's campaign. Um, and one of the things that struck me the most about it, um, as the, the energy was really growing around it, was I love the tagline that you just mentioned, the, the hood to the holler. Um, and, you know, he was an exciting candidate, and I hope to see him again and get to vote for him again, um, because that that hood to the holler, you know, we have so many divisions in Kentucky, right? You know, there's Louisville, there's Lexington, there's, you know, Eastern Kentucky, Western Kentucky, and there's not been in, in my lifetime that I have lived primarily here in Kentucky, um, you know, really people who could bring Kentuckians together. And that was, that was what was striking to me about, about how exciting he was. Um, and I hope that that can, that excitement will continue, um, you know, from your perspective, because you have a really unique perspective on Kentucky and Kentucky politics, I think. Um, how do we do more of that? Like, how do we actually bring those, those bridges, you know, make those bridges to bring those areas together that are so often seems to be at odds with each other. And, you know, I think the Republicans um, and, and some Democrats, too, have really made a, a career out of creating those divisions. And I think that as progressives, our job has to be to build the bridges, to bring those people back together, to make our job into building unity. How do, we, how do you think we do that? Um, I, well, I think you put it really well. Um, I, you know, I, I think one one point, and not to not to um, sound completely anti-establishment, because I can uh, you know work with them as needed. Um, but I think it is it is worth noting that a lot of politics, um, and both parties have been responsible for this to varying degrees, have just been rooted in transactional power and raising um, funds based on what you can do for folks, and then that informs your policy decisions, and then your policy decisions uh, more and more reflect uh, the values of the folks you're beholden to and not the values of the folks you're supposed to represent. And that creates this lots of gaps across our society. And this, this, um, you know, kind of pursuit of profits and power over, um, you know, the lives and health of, of everyday people is, um, you know, has been a pandemic for years. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a little biased. I think there, I, th I feel like the, the GOP has been uh, more egregious in that regard, but the democratic party has, has, uh, you know, had its troubles too. Um, and so it, uh, I think it's worth noting that our that the progressive movement uh, um, is really rooted in values, is rooted in specific values, you know, of like social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, um, and so it's it's so absolutely and and one of the one of the problems we see in traditional politics a lot is this idea, and people come at this in good faith and with good intentions. I've seen it happen lots of times where somebody gets into politics with with 
stars in their eyes um, and the best of intentions, uh, but they can't get the power they need to do the thing they want to do. So they, they recognize, you know what, I, I'm going to need to compromise my values or I'm going to need to do this bad thing in order to get the power so that I can do the good things. Um, and you just end up on this slippery slope where um, um, it becomes more about pursuing power and pursuing this position for yourself than, than, um, than it does about like, why, why are you even doing that? <laughs> like, what, what is the point? Is it to be in a position of power or is it to do good things for the, you know, for, for your community? Um, so anyway, I don't mean to get off on a tangent, but my, but my point being that the, I, um, I think one thing that rooted, you know, Charles's campaign, uh, it was the, you know, it wasn't, I mean, he's a good speaker. He, you know, he's a, he's a compelling candidate. Um, but, but that wasn't the point. I think the point is that he was, he was speaking to people's values in ways that uh, both reflected those values and made them feel heard and seen and understood. And that overcome a lot, you know, that overcame, you know, what could be a lot of barriers between black and white communities, urban and rural communities, because there's way more that connects us than divides us. And to your point, a lot of what is perceived as dividing us right now, a lot of the wedge issues and partisan issues that get thrown into things. I mean, we're whether or not the pandemic is real has become a partisan issue and it really shouldn't be, but that stuff gets thrown out there, you know, is this political distraction. And um, like, for example, a lot of what keeps, a lot of what connects Eastern Kentucky and West Louisville, um, you know, they share some of the highest rates of industrial pollution in the United States. They share some of the uh, roughest economies in the United States, and they share some of the lowest life expectancies in the entire uh, United States. And none of those things are, uh, none of that's a coincidence. All those things are connected. Um, and it, and it's, it's not really right versus left. It's more, um, you know, uh, folks who value power and profits, leveraging their power and profits within our political system to get more and more benefit for themselves at the expense of everybody else. So it's not a left right thing. And I, I, I hate to, uh, you know, sound like a, a, like class warfare, you know, militant, but, um, but a lot of the left right partisan hackery, I think just divides us from the real issues, which are, it's more of a top, top bottom thing. There are folks like McConnell and, uh, and plenty others, you know, um, just holding disproportionate power and using that in really unjust ways. And um, uh, I think a lot of folks just felt heard and seen um, you know, by Charles's campaign and he went to where they were and talked with folks and that's always, you got to show up, <laughs> you got to, um, uh, you know, really make that effort. I think he did. Yeah, absolutely. I really liked the phrase you used, um, transactional politics. Um, that really struck me when you said that, because that is what it is. You know, when, when we talk about, you know, and, and Mitch McConnell, you know, being kind of the king of this, of of using politics as this game, this pawns, you know, of, of just playing with people's lives. Um, it is, it's so transactional, right? It, it makes it about the money. And that's what it's about. It's not about the people. It's not about people's lives. It's about money. Um, and that just really struck me when you said it like that. That's a great way to put it. I think I'd say that people power versus money power is also the story of the primary where we saw, you know, a, a candidate with a multi-million dollar war chest um, versus a very scrappily funded campaign. And, um, and it, you know, and Charles was a phenomenal candidate, but to, but to be clear too, um, you know, one reason he was able to do so well is because his message and candidacy resonated with, you know, so many folks who do this work on the ground and have been doing it for a really long time, that there was a real, you know, swell of grassroots support where, like I said, you know, I mean, all of these, um, 
you know, the, like like the groups around the state that did come out, you know, to, to endorse and support him, where you've got, you know, Surge, you know, uh, setting up their first phone bank, for example, I, I think to make calls for, for Charles's campaign, et cetera. There, there were, you know, lots of groups scaling up their voter engagement activities um, where, where allowable, um, you know, like 501c4s and political organizations, um, you know, really stepping up to the plate in ways they, in ways they hadn't before. And that's a, that's a, like a, a synthesis that kind of needs to happen where a lot of the grassroots groups that are trying to champion their values, whether or not it's, you know, LGBTQ rights or Black Lives Matter or economic justice or environmental justice, um, you know, uh, they're, I don't know how to put it very articulately, but the, their values are, um, are what holds them together. And the, uh, and this idea that, that everybody might have different missions and agendas you know, but they still need some measure of representation um, and political success. Um, we need elected officials and we need candidates. We need representatives who are going to pass policies that reflect our values. And we don't get to have those things. We don't get to have public leaders who share our values unless there's also enough voters in the universe, you know, in the political universe, in this case, in the state of Kentucky, who also who share those values. And so we get candidates and campaigns, they pop up all the time. Um, but there's lots of groups, you know, on the ground, folks like y'all, um, you know, have been in these trenches for a long time working to engage the public. Lots of things. And you've seen how campaigns like build up all this infrastructure and engagement infrastructure, and then they're just over once it's over. Um, and so the, I think the long-term sustained grassroots efforts on the ground in order for them to really keep doing their work of engaging more voters every year, they need candidates win or lose. They need candidates in the races who can carry the torch for these values so that they have something to rally around, you know? So like, so on one hand, like a candidate like Booker needs the support of all these grassroots groups in order to surge in the primary. And on the other hand, these grassroots groups need candidates like Charles to step into the ring and carry the torch for our values. If they're even going to be able to activate voters, you know, <laughs> that, that share these values, we've got to have candidates carrying the torch. So it's a hard, it's a harmonious, um, you know, mutually beneficial, relationship progressive grassroots groups progressive candidates can turn out and i know this is a spoiler alert and a shocker but they can turn out progressive voters when you actually get all those pieces together um and, and it higher scales than folks ever you know thought possible and they keep scaling up each time so um you know i think we've got the pieces in place to keep building this long-term power we're going to you know continue to need folks engaging um, not just candidates and campaigns but the grassroots groups in their communities that speak to their issues because there are ways to stay continuously involved you know, 365 days a year, every year, even if there's not an election cycle, there's always uh, work to be done in this regard. Um, and then, of course, we also need, uh, you know, as more and more candidates see what kind of support there is for this kind of campaign, because I'll make a prediction right now. Charles did so well in this primary and shocked people so much. We are going to now see even more candidates like him uh, stepping up to the plate next time around in this virtuous cycle, you know, um, can just continue. So I, I have every reason to be optimistic about the the path we're on, even though we are in pretty dark times these days. And I think the key to that is what you were just saying is we as progressives and those of us on the left, we have to come to the table together, right? We have to work together and support candidates, support each other, um, and, and not get into what what we <laughs> we liberals like to do which is tear each other apart a lot okay. of the time and instead focus on how do we mutually empower each other so that we can all get to the place that we're trying to get to amen and then the, and then the more we can do to lift up 
you know, organizations and efforts that really are led and driven by impacted communities, you know, by the by the folks, um, you know, that we're aiming to serve. Um, I mean, that's just essential and vital. And that's also the difference between um, you talk about the difference between, you know, uh, giving somebody a fish in a fishing pole. Like it's one thing to go into a disenfranchised community, um, you know, and, and, and try to engage folks and get them registered to vote and everything like that. I mean, that's that's well and fine. It's another thing to go into that community and identify the activists in that community and the folks who are, who are doing the work and get and making sure that they have the tools and the funding and the, the, the position that, you know, that they need to actually make that difference in their community. That's I mean, that's how you really make the difference. It's like, because they're already there. They're already there. For sure. It's not they're, that, they're all over the place. Yeah. It's that we need to support them. Yes. That's great. Uh, Nate, do you have a question for Celis? You know, one thing I'm always really interested in, in, in exploring uh, when we talk about sort of progressive politics is the notion of uh, raising revenue and taxation. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, what it might take to get people to um, at least be willing to cough up more in taxes in order to get kind of the policy changes that we want? Or do you, or do you not say, see that that's necessary? What do you think? I mean, sometimes, you know, obviously, uh, sometimes that's necessary. I think for the most part right now, our, our tax system is, has gotten so far away. So it's gotten so regressive that I think a lot of the more immediate needs, you know, in terms of raising revenue don't actually impact most everyday folks. Um, I, you know, like, like taking away corporate tax loopholes, um, you know, raising, raising, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, taxable income on the upper brackets. I mean, there, there's, um, there's lots that can be done that wouldn't actually put anybody terribly out of their way. Um, uh, that is certainly worth, I, I, I'd rather see the focus there than on, um, uh, you know, debating whether or not we need to raise like everyday folks taxes in order to, to pay for things. That said, it is, un, it, it is, um, I, I do think that folks who want to defend good government um, do need to be prepared to make that case. You know, it's real easy for um, like taxes are so unpopular that it can be real easy for us to just treat it, treat it like a stigma or anathema and not um, actually just have the, you know, realistic discussions about what government is and can be and, and should be responsible for and what is and isn't worth paying for. And of course, within that, I think there's plenty to debate about whether or not we're raising too much money for some things. I mean, we can talk about our military budget, um, you know, I, I think it's actually absolutely ridiculous to talk about all the things we can't afford when the president's spending millions of dollars on his own golf trips. <laughs> you know, like whole, whole agencies are getting cut, you know, cut uh, for lack of the funds that he's spending golfing, um, you know, and, and never mind just all the, the, the bloated military budget. Um, I mean, there's there's all, there's, lo there's lots of ways to talk about revenue and equity within revenue without um uh, raising taxes on folks who are already pretty economically stressed and, and that's just a delicate message because I don't, I don't mean to imply that taxes are inherently bad thing um, right uh, there's always taxes you know there's always money for tax cuts there's always money for the military uh, and you know for this moment there's money for the coronavirus response but just watch if Mitch remains in power if he remains majority leader in the senate there all of a sudden they're gonna have to pay 
for all the coronavirus uh, response. And they're going to be paying with cuts in Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. That's the only way they know how to pay for anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's his agenda. It, it'll yeah. be coming. So I don't know that it's even so much a... I don't even know that it's so much a question of how of, of how do you pay for this stuff? Oh, we pay for it with cuts to Social Security, and Medicare. So much as their goal is to cut Social Security right, and Medicare, right. and so <laughs> any can, chance you can get to cause budgetary harm elsewhere just gives you this beautiful excuse then to do what you actually wanted to do in the first place. So I, I think they're being a little more disingenuous than that. Oh yeah, no. I mean, it's that this will be their opportunity, right? They they yeah. have a, an agenda. They look for an opportunity to advance it, and you never let a good crisis go to waste, right? So that's that's what you'll be uh, will be seeing. But so, already said final... the states can go bankrupt, so. right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, well, just to, just to say that uh, I think ballot access is a non sexy and super important issue that folks need to be aware of. We just saw the highest voter turnout. And you know, in a in a primary ever in Kentucky, um, and of course we had a you know big primary with exciting candidates, and we had lots of lots of grassroots groups scaling up the work in ways they never had before, you know, to register more voters and turn out the vote. But I think we also, uh, for the most part, understand that um, that one reason turnout was so high is because we had to expand ballot access due to the pandemic. So we had early mail-in early absentee voting, we had mail-in voting, which is really common in other parts of the country, but it really underscores just how regressive and limited Kentucky's ballot access is. We actually have some of the worst ballot access in the entire country. We take it for granted that it's okay that we only have this 12-hour window on one day in which we can go to vote, um, you know, which which privileges uh, privilege, even though that can be hard for some folks to hear, um, and, it, and it makes it easier to disenfranchise some folks. Um, and just the fact that we had to like ease those restrictions a little bit because we're in a pandemic, um, both underscores just how poorly we've been doing as a state in supporting civic engagement up to this point and how and how really poor our ballot access is. Um, and it also, I think, really shows the path forward. If we wanna make sure that all Kentuckians have a voice in their future, then we need to make sure that everybody has has equal access to the ballot. And so I think it's, it's gonna be important to try to um, you know, ex expand what we've had in the past. Like I, I not, going back to the status quo even would not be great. Um, we need to expand absentee vote voting, expand early voting, make it easier for people to vote. Um, and that and that should not be a partisan issue. That should be something that everybody should celebrate and agree on that our democracy, our representative republic works better when everybody has a voice in it. Yeah, unfortunately that is uh, them's fighting words for our current secretary of state. So let's, uh, let's bring it on. Uh, yeah, uh, good point. So, Celis, thank you so much for sharing your views with us, for coming on, having a chat about the progressive political landscape here in our great Commonwealth. Uh, and thanks for all the work you're doing to help make it uh, make it better. Thanks, y'all. All right. So, hey, folks, we've got uh, really exciting shows coming up the next couple of weeks. Uh, on the 27th, our, our next show is Bill Londrigan uh, from the Kentucky AFL-CIO. So we know that Mitch is no fan of labor. Uh, and he's been at the root of a lot of efforts to weaken uh, labor protections at the federal level. Uh, Bill is going to talk a bit about that and what we need to do uh, to hold Mitch accountable uh, for labor. Uh, and then uh, August 3rd, I think we've got, uh, we're going to focus on coal and coal communities. Uh, a representative from the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, a local member, is going to be uh, on with us talking about you know, it, whether Mitch is a friend of coal communities. He likes to say he's a friend of coal. Uh, but is he a friend of coal communities? We'll hear uh, hear from them. So uh, that's pretty much our show tonight. Uh, Julie and Nate, any final thoughts you want to share with folks? 
Uh, yeah, you know, uh, let's uh, get some more sharing of uh, that song that was debuted last week, uh, Mitch, please. And you can find oh. links to it on our, our page. Nate, are you are you doing a little self promotion there? It felt very awkward. Uh, it felt like you know maybe maybe this is not your uh, your you know your true strength. Uh, so his strength is writing great catchy songs uh, and uh, performing them and creating great videos. So I will take a moment uh, so that Nate doesn't have to do it. But go watch Mitch, please. It's on YouTube. We've shared it a bunch. Share it. Well, share it yourselves if you like it. Right? Like I was saying, if you like the Beatles uh, and hate Mitch. This is your jam. It is uh, phenomenal. You're gonna love it. You're gonna have a very hard time getting it out of your head, uh, but you've got you know three and a half months to get it out of your head as we're trying to get Mitch out of office. So uh, let's do that. Uh, how about you, Julie? Uh, thank you all so much for having me tonight. Um, it's been a real pleasure to to be here and participate in this. And you know, I, I just I feel excited. You know, this has been exciting to me. I feel energy and excitement about. Um, what we can do when we come together and we participate together. Um, I always, uh, you know, I love to hear what's happening around our city and around our state. Um, and I think, you know, if we if we keep that energy and an excitement, if we can work together, um, that we have some really good days before us. Um, and we need that because we need to make some differences. Um, we need to make some some real change happen in this election that's coming up. Amen. Let's make some change happen in this uh, election. So best way to do it, well, there's a lot of great ways to do it. I'm gonna, I'm a little biased, but a great way to help us make change in this election. Uh, make sure to like our page, make sure to share our page, ask to join the group if you wanna get a little bit more engaged. We're using Facebook because, you know, we are in fact in a, you know, uh, in a kind of COVID situation. Uh, we are thinking about some socially distanced protests outside of Mitch's office. So if you wanna get engaged with that, uh, hit us up on the Facebook page. We'll talk about it, we'll uh, strategize for it. Uh, but yeah, really, really important that folks uh, get engaged right now. Uh, you know, a, a point that you know, Celis was making about the kind of your progressive values and speaking to your values as, as your political work. Mitch has got, all right, so the coronavirus relief stuff that's happening right now is critical and it's important. And Mitch uh, is a horrible human because two months ago, as you heard Dan talk about, the House passed the, the HEROES bill. They said, this is what we need to do for the next you know, tranche of support for the coronavirus efforts, relief efforts. And Mitch has done nothing to the very final moment. And why can he do that? Because he doesn't care about how people are affected. He can use that deadline against the House because we, Democratic politicians, Democratic people, care about how people are gonna be affected. He doesn't care. Mitch doesn't care. He can he can walk it to the end of the deadline. He can walk it beyond the deadline. He does not care. Uh, and, you know, the corporations will get their, you know, legal liability protection and they're not going to get sued immediately. So he doesn't need that immediately. We know that people need the six hundred dollars a week immediately. Uh, so it is just one more example of his cynical, horrible take on politics that we need to, uh, you know, we need to get rid of. You know, we need to rip it out root and branch and get rid of Mitch McConnell and his impact on our uh, political system. And I, I appreciate you tuning into this live stream to help us have the tools to do that. I hope we're giving you some of the tools you need to take your activism out there into the universe and into the, you know, into real life. Uh, get off the Internet and tell people about why Mitch and his policies hurt our state. Uh, but yeah, folks, thank you so much for being a part of the Mitch McConnell Retirement Committee.
Oh, uh, okay. And one one other thing I didn't mention, uh, please do think about making a contribution. So we've partnered with Indivisible. We are an, a local Indivisible uh, affiliate. So that means we've got a great ActBlue account. Uh, ActBlue, which is really just, you know, PayPal for politics, uh, use that portal, give us the money so we can put it to work, so we can spread the news, uh, amplify our message, get stuff done to get rid of Mitch. Make a contribution right now. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be an NRA style contribution to Mitch. Uh, although if you want to, like, I don't think we've got a cap on how much of a contribution you want to make, but you know, five, 10, 50 bucks, it all adds up pretty well. Uh, and you can make it, you know, weekly or monthly. We've only got a few months left to get this stuff done. So you might want to donate a couple times. That's it. We're out. Thank you, folks. Man.